Welcome to another episode of Language for Liberation. This is your boy, Bakari Ibrahim, a.k.a. Uji Baka, joined by my illustrious philosophical co-host, Mr. Barrett Holmes-Pittner, uh, here to discuss with you another word this week. How you doing, man? What's going on? I'm good, man. I'm uh, Yeah, I'm good. It's a short week. We had like a long Labor Day, and I think it's taken me a second to get back on the groove, but I'm good. I'm good. You know, the thing about uh, short weeks is like, you know, you always look forward to the three-day work week, but then like short weeks are never like, oh, it's quicker weekend. It comes back around quick. You're actually just trying to condense a lot more into four days. Yeah. <laughs> and then like the week afterwards, you're like, man, it took, I, did I even get as much stuff done? I hope I did. I don't think I did. Right. right. Which, but anyways, no, I'm good. I'm good. You're back. You're back into the run of it. But let's get, um, you know, right into it um, because I think the current events of this week uh, lend directly to our word this week, which brings us to our word this week, which is a renarung sculpture, which means memory culture. And um, I'm glad I was able to get that off after practicing it <laughs> so much. <laughs> yeah, for real, like Germany, German with their, their compound words, it's, it is like a linguistic Olympic sometimes to say these words, uh, but once, like they're so long, that they can be quite intimidating, but fortunately that's pretty phonetic, you know, like they, they, they sound like they look, they just look yeah. like really long words. <laughs> <laughs> I dig it. But, um, you know, I really like this word, uh, memory culture, or as it's also defined and as we'll also discuss, you know, a culture of remembrance, um, which, you know, in looking at, you know, this past week and, you know, the news of, you know, Donald Trump signing an executive order to federally defund race research and diversity and inclusion efforts, essentially. And, you know, a move to investigate the Board of Education for, you know, having the 1619 project as a part of school curriculums. It really, you know, makes you call into question, you know, what do we as a nation choose to remember? And how does that affect our culture? And so, you know, thinking about that and then, you know, our discussion around, uh, you know, the word today, you know, put some things together for me. So let's let's talk about, you know, the history of the word. You know, how did you, one, find the word and, you know, how is it used? What's its origination? Yeah, so I, I learned about the word from a, a book I read last year called Learning from the Germans. Um, and the book speculated that maybe how Germany has figured out how to address the Holocaust and, and commence processes of reconciliation or healing and remembrance, that this could be a template for uh, addressing American race relations. And, and you know, I'm not going to get into whether I agree with like the author's conclusion or not, but this word was one of the words, one of the Germanic words that uh, I was introduced to in the book. And I, it, it just really fascinated me because after the war, you know, there's definitely a period of, you know, denial uh, by segments of Germany. They wanted to act as though they could just move on and not really like deal with it. But then, you know, it became evident that that just wasn't feasible. That wasn't a right. healthy thing to do. So they had this one idea that was, it's a even harder German compound word that I'm not even going to try to say because I don't speak <laughs> German. But the, the word means working off the past. And it was like this idea that if you did good deeds in the present and became, you know, made sure that you're a good person today, that the past misdeeds would get like worked off. Like you wouldn't, they kind of, they get fixed and you can just move mm -hmm. on from it. 
And it became evident that that just wasn't possible. Like there wasn't an amount of work that a German person could do that could work off the Holocaust. You know, like the Holocaust was still something that was there. It was still something that you needed to remember. Uh, and your good deeds in the present didn't change the fact that that happened in the past. You should still do good deeds. It's not to say that you shouldn't do good deeds, but it's just saying that those good deeds do not equate to the past not having bad stuff in it anymore. And so from that realization, there became this new idea, uh, which is Erinnerungskultur, which is memory culture, which is essentially like the acknowledgement that you just now have to have a culture that consists of remembering what came before it, including the bad things and confronting the bad things. It's, 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 it's very much like a, uh, an understanding of that you have to be responsible. Like you have to be responsible for your good deeds and you have to be responsible for your bad deeds. And your culture has to remember both so that people can learn to do the good things, to continue the good things you did in the past and not succumb and repeat the bad things you did in the past. And if you have this idea that the bad deeds can get worked off or you can forget about them, then that inclines, it makes it more possible that people will fall down the, the negative paths that, that happened before. And so I thought this word was really, was really significant because I don't think America in much of any capacity, like we're trying now in the 1619 project is, is part of it, but America at scale doesn't have a, a desire to have a memory culture. They, there, there's a, you know, lots of people have narratives of, you know, kind of working off the past where they don't want to be held responsible for Jim Crow or slavery or stuff that happened in the nineties. They want people to think about that. They're a good person now. So let's just not, not talk about what happened in the past because it doesn't matter because I'm good right now. It's like that notion of working off the past doesn't really work. And so then the step past that is one that you remember the past and you are responsible for the past and you remind people of the bad things that happened in the past. And, um, you know, the Trump administration's, you know, opposition to the 1619 Project just shows how there's like a large segment of America, especially like powerful people within America Mm -hmm. that have no desire to remember the past or have a culture that consists of remembering uh, or having a, you know, a cultural memory. It's more of a culture that's just like uplifting propaganda. And that's quite dangerous. You know, you mentioned, um, you know, the 1619 project being like a part of this as like an attempt to remember culture. How do we kind of incorporate memory culture or how is memory culture kind of depicted in other cultures? You know, um, for example, for the Germans, how do they practice memory culture? Is it, does it go beyond like education or just like knowing? Is it like their practice? And how do you think that it could be implemented here in the United States? But to be honest, like the things that, that the Germans have done is on a scale that I don't even think Americans could even fathom as being possible. And like, and the Germans wouldn't even say that they're good. You know, they're, they, they say that they're still working on it. But, you know, like Berlin apparently has over 20 like big memorials to remember the Holocaust. You know, like if you look at Washington, D.C., we just got 
the African-American History Museum. And we have like a big museum for that. But you're not going to go around D.C. and just see memorial and monument after monument reminding people of the horrors of slavery and Jim Crow and to teach Americans to not repeat what that was. But throughout Germany, throughout Berlin, they have a bunch of them. And there's also this other thing. They're called like stepping stones. You know, clearly they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're in German. But these stepping stones are, you know, like in Europe, a lot of the roads are cobblestones and whatnot. So what this artist recently did is they put stones in the ground where like a Jewish person from the Holocaust or a victim of the Holocaust, not necessarily Jewish, last freely lived. So like... Say it's the house they lived in before the Gestapo came and took them to the concentration camps. There's a stone outside that house that says, here lived in that person's name, their date of birth, and what happened to them. And there are just over 70,000 of these stones throughout Germany and Europe to just remember people. So like you're just walking down the street and you look down and you get something that reminds you that right here, some it's Jewish person lived life. and he was then murdered or, 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 forced, or forced to leave the country because right. of what Germany was doing. You know, like, just think about it. Like, there are people that buy houses and they don't have no idea the history of the house. And then they find out, holy crap, like in the 1940s, somebody, a Jewish person lived here and they were forced to leave their home. And now they think right. about that. It's just like a reminder, like, wow, like, this this is real. It's it's sobering. They have they have all sorts of things like that. Another thing that I find really fascinating is a lot of affluent Germans are actively doing audits of their family's wealth and history to determine how much, if any, of their present affluence was due to collaborating or working with the Nazis. Yeah, like because of you know, in addition to like concentration camps, they had like forced labor slave camps because during the World War II, and a lot of people outside, you know, in the U.S., we don't really mm-hmm. think about this, but like it wasn't just Jewish people in the Holocaust that right. were like the crimes against humanity. Like the German military, the Wehrmacht, they had a whole policy that was essentially like a European application of Manifest Destiny, where they're like, it's our destiny to just populate Eastern Europe with German people. So as they would go into Eastern European towns or whatnot, it wasn't, we're conquering this area and we're just going to like put people in, you know, prisoner of war camps or whatever. It was like, no, no, no. Like we're coming here and we're just exterminating people. Like we want all of these people that they called untermenschen or like under people to just be gone. And we're just going to populate it all with Germans. And so the ex- so there was a whole like network of getting like Eastern European Slavic people and shipping them to like German factories and using them as slave labor right. to help build clothes and machines and all sorts of stuff to power German factories. And so there's a whole network of, of like abuse and atrocity that, you know, is confined to this, you know, 15 year period. Um, and so like German people, like affluent German people are doing these audits and they're finding out horrible things about like their grandparents that, you know, yeah. clearly once the war ended, 
they weren't going around talking about all the horrific stuff they did for, you know, about a decade. But now they what know. What do they do with that information? Like, are they, is it essentially like reparations? Are they paying back the families that are affected? Or is it just like for their own personal knowledge and like their own work that they're doing to like overcome the atrocities? So it's, it's a both. Like they definitely like, and it, it depends on family to family because it's not like it's a government mandate. The government's not mm, saying you have okay. to do it. It's we as a people need to know our history. We need to know where our money's from. Like I, you know, they culturally are understanding that they don't want to be affluent people and their opulence is due, the backs to, of, like, yeah. due to like an atrocity and they're just like gleefully living like that. So it, it, in many ways, it's up to the family and the families are determining based on the scope and the severity what they think is the is the proper way to you know allocate you know to support this that and the other but you know they definitely are will allocate money to you know institutions that are that are are making sure that this is known like you know germany is quite different than the u.s because they have a pretty robust social safety net people in germany have health care like it's it's easy People, you know, the education standards are pretty good. Unemployment, you know, the government benefits you get. So there's not like a need to redistribute wealth to like, to the same degree of the U.S. of like underserved communities because the German community gets served better than American. Right. So it's it's more like how can we fund projects to make sure that there's an awareness of this? And they'll actually like publicize the information that they got. It's like, we did research and we found out that our grandfather did all of this horrible stuff and we're just letting the public know that we know and we think this is wrong and that we are going to determine the best way to try to help make our society better and not be people that just live off of profiting from these abuses. You know, that's really interesting. Um, This whole conversation is really interesting to hear because, you know, thinking back to, you know, the U.S. and this idea that, you know, in some cases, you know, we have, you know, tried to work off the past and, and try to, uh, you know, provide, um, I guess, verbal reparations, if it is. I don't think they've ever given us anything, but they definitely like to make us feel as if progress is being made and, in, in, you know, we're moving in a, in a better direction. But this idea of, you know, being responsible for the good and bad deeds and this impetus to not repeat uh, you know, things that have happened and, and issues in the past, that I think is very important because I think we constantly see that the United States is victim to a, a culture of negative repetition or, or a culture of repetition of, you know, how often do we have to look back every 50 years to see the same issue comes back up in a new way just by the advancement of the technology, not that anything necessarily changed in any way. Yeah, we we have the most absurd conversation about this stuff. And and it's it, the absurdity is I think like the foundational like agreement that America like requires people to like agree to before conversations are like deemed legitimate is that mm-hmm. America is inherently good and that the people that like run society run the society and the ideas of America are good. And once you can like, once you agree on that, now we can have a conversation. And it's like, 
but that doesn't make any sense. Like there is no place on the planet that is just naturally good, that is just going to do good things all the time. Every person is capable of doing something horrible at any given day, at any time. And those horrible things can be accidents. Like it's right. not it's not that you decided to become an, an evil person. It's just an accident or you had an idea that you thought was a good idea and turns out it's a really bad idea. And now it's bad. That's bad. It's bad because of the impact, not because of like what you thought. Mm-hmm. And the US just tries to like deny that basic component of just human existence. And it's, that's just completely crazy. And what happens is white society, white dominated society will do something horrible, such as Jim Crow. Just say you want to just go Jim Crow. We're talking a good 60 years of, of socially understood, accepted, condoned, perpetual segregation and exploitation with the goal of making it as close to legally possible as pre-Civil War slavery. Yeah. Like, America just says, we're doing this. And as they're doing it, as we talk about American society, the, the demand is that we say, America's a good place. Like, you know, yeah. we might not live up to our goals. We might not live up to what we're trying to do. But we're, we want to do good things. Therefore, we're good, and it's good. And it's like, how can you good be intentioned. good? How can, like, yeah, exactly. It's based on, goodness is based on what the perceived intentions are and not on the outcomes. And so it right. creates this, like, quite, you know, insane dynamic of valuing the intent more than the outcome. So if a bad thing happens while you're trying to do something good, the cultural narrative is that we should care about the intent more than the outcome that's absolutely insane that's just the craziest thing i've ever heard it'd be like if you are taking an exam and you get a fat f and you go up to the teacher and you say hey teacher i know i got an f but i tried to get an a like my goal was to get an a on this and so i think since i want to get an a and i tried to get an a you should give me an a and the teacher says that makes sense. Here's your A. Like, it's that would never crazy. happen, right? And so I think that's why, like, America always like repeats bad things because there's not a, a a concept of actually having a memory culture, and there's not a concept of acknowledging that bad things have ever happened. It's only acknowledging that we imagine that only good things happen. So let's think about we know like America, white America in general, doesn't have this memory culture, but you know, many of the other races and other people that make up American society do have that memory culture. And a lot of that memory culture of remembering the good and the bad and mostly the negative are at the hands of the upper white America, you Mm -hmm. know, the upper class white America. And so how, let's talk about how other you know, races in America and around the world kind of practice memory culture. We've talked before about, you know, altars uh, in Dia de los Muertos before. Um, and we've talked about, you know, ways that, you know, Black communities honor uh, people that have passed on. But what are some ways that you see memory culture practiced in, by other races in America? So, you know, that's, it's a great question. So 
the first part, like how do other people like remember culture? They just remember like that's, it's really simple. It's, it's one of these fascinating things where like, if you're talking to an African American or Latino or Asian American, there's a higher likelihood that when they talk about the past, that past incorporates negative stories. It's not like some curated retelling of the past that only it only includes like the good aspects of things that happened. It's it's just what actually happened. Like that's just like yeah. a basic concept of memory culture. And I think at an individual level, most Americans do that. And it's like, you know, to a certain degree, you have to have like a a level of sympathy for some white Americans in that, you know, talking about their grandparents or great grandparents is going to be unpleasant. It's going to be a okay. difficult conversation. And it's a difficult conversation that I'm just never as a black person going to have. Like if I look at the past, I'm just going to find more and more awesome black people that just were not given enough opportunities to like express their talent. That's it. That's there's, right. There's not, I'm not going to find somebody that I'm like, ooh, this person committed atrocities. That's just not going to be a thing. White people are going to find a whole bunch of those people. And so even when they are tasked with telling their story, there's going to be a desire to not tell the true story because it's hard. I totally get that that's yeah. difficult. And so the thing is really not about the individual anguish or the individual capacity to tell a story. It's about what, as a culture, do you create so that you can do this at scale? So like the German word, culture, memory culture, creates a cultural template that allows people to do this at scale, that makes it so that people that have the difficult comprehend, like aspect of the past can collectively support each other and grieve and they can talk to jewish people about this type of stuff so now there's like it's like a communal thing that's happening opposed to just individuals trying to arbitrarily deal with it on their own you know like if you can be a white german person who goes and buys a house then you look out your out your door and you find out that an artist placed a stone in front of your house that lets you know that like a jewish person was forced to leave here in the 40s and you can say you will have a response that wouldn't be that you're angry at the artist. You know, you wouldn't be yeah. upset that the artist destroyed your idyllic vision. It would be like some really sobering, difficult thing to deal with, but you'd know that you're not dealing with it all on your own. There's a whole culture of, of memory culture that's here to support you as you deal with this difficult thing and try to get better. The U S yeah. doesn't do that at scale. And so like, at SCL, we are working on, we're, we're doing the altars project right now. And this is something we're going to do every single year. That's partially inspired by Day of the Dead, where, you know, indigenous people in what is now Mexico for thousands of years have been doing annual ancestor remembrance celebrations to ensure that their past doesn't get forgotten, that the people that passed away that yeah. year and in previous years, their stories get told people collectively get to grieve over that type of loss. And by grieving over that loss, telling their story and having the celebration, you collectively grieve, you collectively keep stories alive and you strengthen your community every single year. Like this is like right. the, the natural structure you need to remember the good things 
and the bad things. And people all around the world have some sort of celebration like this. And I think a lot of American immigrants bring this culture to the U.S. And then as they're in the U.S., they get disincentivized to continue it. Or they don't, or due to the fact that there's so many different cultures here, since they don't celebrate those traditions at the same day, they don't ever rise to the scale. They just seem like some sort of like niche thing that, you know, you know, Indian people do, or, you know, you know, people from Bahamas do, or people from West Africa do, instead of it being like, this is something that like America does. And yeah. so like our idea for the altars project is if we can give this like one day that's already growing in popularity because it's Dia de los Muertos and the Mexican community already does it and say, I encourage, uh, you know, Indian Americans and Asian Americans and other indigenous people and, and African Americans to also make altars, to also tell their, those stories, yeah. to deal with that trauma, to strengthen their communities and do it together. Something like quite remarkable can happen that can cultivate a memory culture. One thing that I also think is really profound about like the altars is hypothetically speaking, say someone doesn't like it. Say someone wants to destroy it destroy the altar or they wanted to or they want to kill people that do it all that does is reinforce the necessity to do it the next year yeah <laughs> you know right like if if they're trying to terrorize you to not remember your culture well remember the culture, culture the next right. year and well, remember that that. they try to terrorize you from doing it and just keep on doing it like so like the pushback reinforces the necessity and I think that's like quite profound. And so, so yeah, so we, we, I think having the philosophy and the language and the practice of yeah. remembering your culture is just quite essential. And it's just not something that the U.S. encourages at all because our ethnocidal cultural destroying society does not encourage people to remember their culture and it it doesn't encourage the people that are perpetuating ethnocide to have authentic culture. Well, you know, another thing I just thought of is that, you know, many of the words that we talk about, you know, are about remembering people and remembering more than yourself in which, you know, this is a individualistic society that we live under. So it's really not about remembering anything that comes before you. You know, I really don't care about anyone else's past, present and future, but myself. And I will only acknowledge the best things of my past, present, and future and what I deem those things to be. Uh, because, you know, I think that we, our stories have been kind of commoditized in a way that, like, you need to maintain that good in your story. You need to tell that good in your story in order to get something in return later mm -hmm. for it. And, you know, we've just held on to that in so long to where even the people affected by it still hold on to it in ways to get to get ahead. And so it's a it's a complete uh, infestation. It's a parasite of that culture. 100%. Just to add on to that, I hope I wasn't interrupting you, but like, no, 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 not at all. But yeah, like American individualism is just a total, it's just total nonsense. Um, and it's, it's an idea that can exist. If you are that privileged oppressor who wants to de deny that you benefit from an oppressive structure. Like if you're set up in a way where you just don't need to know anything 
and just focus on yourself, then you don't need to know the destruction that you're causing that gives you so much comfort. You can just focus on yourself. And you can see how destructive that is at scale, but also just at like how people interact with each other. And this, like, this might be controversial, but when I watch TV and they depict like white families, whether they're fictional or just real, nonfiction, there is an expectation that the kids don't like their parents or that the parents don't yeah. like their parents. It's this understanding that like, there isn't really a communal bond, even within families, that families are like this annoying hindrance that you don't, you're not expected to know or learn anything from your predecessor. You're just supposed to be better than them and that they hold you back and that they have ideas of how to like live life that are so bad that you don't want to be associated with your own family. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, this I think is a, is a, is indicative of like an ethnocidal structure where you're an individual, you don't really, you're not encouraged to care about the impact of your actions beyond yourself. And then when other people see it, they don't want to be associated with you either. And then they go do something and then they're encouraged to think about themselves. And then the next generation. And so like no one tries to set an example. No one tries to like be responsible. It's basically no matter what you do or how good or bad of a person you are, there's going to be enough you know, financial support that you'll be able to live and you're good to go. And that is just horrible. Like you just can't get grosser than that. Like, for example, like right now, I I never think of myself as like, as just an individual. I think if I do things just for the pure purpose of benefiting Barrett, that that's just a complete waste of time because I'm going to die at some point. That's it. Like we all know that all the stuff that we do just for ourselves, at the end of the day isn't going to matter. Cause like at some point, none of us are going to matter. We're only going to matter pertaining to the things that we've given to other people that they then continue. So that can be knowledge that can be all sorts of stuff, the memories, and then people will be implored to keep those memories alive because they need those memories to be a good person. Like that's how you live. It's not based on like the stuff that you bought for yourself or all that kind of gibberish. And so it just doesn't make any sense to view yourself as an individual. Live to be a loving memory, basically. 100%. (laughs) And, you know, like, I guess it's kind of, you know, a real simple way to look at it is we all have friends that we don't see every second of the day. But that friend is still alive because you remember them in your brain. Like you pick up the, if you haven't spoken to someone for three months, if you pick up the phone and call them up, you don't have to have a conversation rehashing everything about their life and starting from square one because they've been alive in your head the whole time. They've done, they've done something in life that makes it so that they live in your brain, even when they're not alive. You know, like if you think about back in the past when it was harder to like, it took it was more effort to communicate where you had to write letters and stuff. And if you want to talk to someone, you'd put a letter in the mail and they'd get that letter for like three, you know, three weeks later, a month later, that letter could be notifying someone that someone died. Yeah. During that yeah. month long window, you thought they were that alive. Person's dead, <laughs> that person who got that letter remembered them as they were alive. And now that person's dead. 
the memory is still the same. The person still lives in their brain. They just yeah. know that they're not going to see them and touch them physically, but they are still alive in their head. Like that's how right. you live. And everything that you learn from that and everything that it continues with you, it won't go away. Right. It stays in your head. And you know, like even as, as I get older, I'm as an individual, I'm less and less like my parents, but I'm also more and more like my parents. And I still right. look a lot like them. The idea for me to think that I look how I look and my brain is how it is and I sound how I do and I do da 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 is all because of me as an individual. It's like, that's crazy. Like I look exactly like my dad. It'd be (laughs) be nuts to think that I'm an individual and not a clear (laughs) manifestation representation of this other person. And so, and so no, American individualism is just this absurd idea that consists of basically people trying to reduce themselves to nothingness in exchange for money. Straight up. <laughs> Dope. <laughs> Dope, man. Um, you know, as our time winds down here, you know, um, you know, any final thoughts on memory culture, you know, and, and what we move on from? Yeah, I think, you know, t- from now through Day of the Dead, which is October 31st, November 2nd, some places it's November 1st and November 2nd, but we like doing three days. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about memory culture and death and the importance of remembering the past to make the present good and the future good. And so there's, this, is a, this is a consistent theme. This is something that we will be talking about over the next two months, you know, a month and a half. Um, and so this is just the beginning of a series of conversations on this. And I think the U.S., due to being a society based around sustaining white essence and having white essence like dominate our society, disincentivizes people to remember anything beyond the, the idyllic fantasy of white yeah. essence. And as people that live here, uh, whether you're white or not, you need to have a focus on the existence and reality and remembering that so that you don't encourage yourself and others to just be perpetually delusional and disconnected from reality. Dope, so yeah, dope, that's man. that. <laughs> good deal, good deal. Well, dope. Well, you know, this has been another episode of uh, Language for Liberation. Today's word being, let's try it again, <laughs> a Ritterung sculpture. That was good. That was good. A Ritterung sculpture. It gets easier the more sculpture. you say it, you know? It does. It gets it does. less scary. <laughs> yeah. In, indeed it does, uh, which means memory culture. Um, so, you know, thank you for Bear for, you know, giving us the overview. Um, definitely, you know, a word that rings true now. And, you know, as we move into like election season and just, you know, looking at all the, all that's going on, you know, having a culture of remembrance, remembering our past, remembering the things that we've done and what has happened, you know, will only help us create a stronger future. So oh. thank you for that context. I got to so, add that because you reminded me about, about voting and stuff. A key thing regarding democracy that I think America tragically is still trying to learn is that when you vote, you don't vote as an individual. Like you are an individual voting, but like the things that influence your decision are not based on exclusively what you need. 
they're based on what's beneficial for society and things that would benefit your parents and your, your, sibling mem your siblings and your community and all that kind of stuff. And so the greater memory and awareness you have of your ancestors and what they were working for, which is working for things yeah. to benefit you, that should influence how you vote and if you want to vote. I think a lot of people decide not to vote because they don't see how it impacts them at an individual level. And it's like, yeah. it's, that's irrelevant. You're doing it at a cultural collective level where I, you know, if, if I think that some candidate has policies that are quite detrimental to people of color, even if those policies might not be as detrimental for me personally, I'm not going to want to support those policies. So I wouldn't vote okay. for that person because like, I'm not an alone as a person of color in America. Like it just, that's a key thing. And so part of the memory culture uh, work, the, the day of the dead work and the timing where day of the dead's right before election is to incline people to think about stuff beyond themselves, both in the present and the past and have that influence their actions, whether that's making an altar or calling up a friend or going to the ballot box and voting accordingly. Dope. Awesome. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Thank you. This is another good week. Yeah, another great episode. So, um, you know, with that being said, you know, this has been Language for Liberation. Uh, check us out on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Uh, you know, follow us online at scl.community and on social media at scl.community. And we'll talk to you guys next time. Peace. Later. Bye.